I will be reading from James uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. Please, on page 586, you can turn there. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to take that with you. Here is God's word. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he be brought forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is God's word. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the power of your word, the majesty of your word, the sufficiency of your word, Lord God, the completeness of your word. It's so wonderful, Lord. What a gift that you've given us. And Lord, we, we, we rejoice in you this morning that your word tells us that you are a generous God, that every good and every perfect gift comes from you. And Lord, we stand before you as a people who need to repent because we've forgotten that, Lord God. God, we've thought either that we have, by our own power, our own strength, have have brought good things to our life, or God, we have failed to see your goodness in every aspect of life. And so for that, God, we ask for your forgiveness and for your uh, uh, just bringing us into the truth, into the light. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would have that effect on us this morning. Invade our hearts, rid us of our, of our selfishness, our stinginess, our, 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 our self-centeredness, Lord God, and let us just rejoice in the light of a generous God. So, God, we also want to ask you for help this morning. God, that this people needs help to hear, and I need help to speak, Lord God. Together, we need help to hear your word and to let your word transform our life. And so, God, just do what only you can do today. Make the word living and active inside of us today, Lord God. God, and let me be effective as your oracle, Lord God, to speak truth, Lord God, and to not shy away from it, but, Lord, to rejoice in it myself and to, and to uh, God, to proclaim it boldly and to proclaim it accurately, to proclaim it clearly. And for all of this, Lord, and for many other things, I give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Um, Hey, one thing that we didn't mention this morning before I get started, I want to let you know. One of the things that's very important to the life of Northridge Life Church um, is uh, what some churches call membership. We call it covenant partnership. And all that is, it's it's a, a group of people that have said that I want to live my life um, committed in commitment with a, a body of believers, and and to have them, this is the, the the dual benefit to have them in commitment to me, and and um, so what we do is we we invite people. We don't we never coerce people, but we invite people into covenant partnership. And the way we do that is we want we want you to be able to 
uh, kick the tires, get to know us. And we've, we've had uh, just a really neat season in the last couple of months of a lot of new people coming to Northridge Life Church. And we're really glad to see all your faces. Uh, but we want to invite you now into uh, knowing us a little bit more. And so uh, we're going to, through the month of October, beginning on October 4th, and for four consecutive Sunday mornings um, at, uh, what did we say, Ginger? 8.30, I think. At 8.30 in the morning, we're going to have um, some covenant partnership classes. And we would love to, if you're new here and, and this is beginning to feel like home and you want to be uh, a part and know some more about Northridge Life Church, we would love to invite you to be a part of that group. Um, we are going to provide child care for those of the, you that have children. So what we need you to do after church, um, Paul will be in the foyer and um, he uh, will help you to get signed up for that. But make sure you let us know uh, sooner rather than later that you're planning on coming and uh, and uh, we'll, we can give you more details at that time. So back to the message. Um, I do want to say hi, though, to those of you who are watching online. We still have a few of you and um, I'm so I'm so glad you're here with us this morning. Wish you were here uh, in person with us, and we hope to see you soon. So we read this passage uh, from James, or Jennifer read this passage for us, and I want us to think deeply about what it is actually saying. It says, familiar words, it says, every good and every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, from God, is who that is referring to. We know that the Bible says this, Almost all of you could quote this from memory, no matter how much church you have in your background. In the beginning, what happened? Come on, let me hear you. In the beginning, what happened? This is the first thing that the Bible tells us, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I'm convinced that most of you here would acknowledge that fact. There's probably few of you in this room right now that would argue against God being the origin of all things. And that's good, because He was. But have you ever asked yourself why God created? We know that He did, but why did He? The fact of God's creation is written in those immortal words. In the beginning, God created the, the heavens and the earth. It's in the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. It's pretty significant placement in the Bible. But if we want to know the answer to our question this morning, why God created, we have to flip all the way to the back of the Bible. We have to go to the very last book, to the book of Revelation, and we discover there the Bible's simple but very glorious answer to why we were created in one simple verse. So, the scene is this, in, in Revelation chapter 4, John is having this vision of this, of this, this uh, court, this, this uh, royal court in, in heaven, and he sees 24 elders that can, can never do anything better than to throw their crowns at Jesus' feet, realizing that he is worthy and they are not. And the Bible tells us that as they do this act of worship, this is what they say, day and night, forever and ever, this is what they say. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Now pay attention, for you created all things. Remember, we all agree on that. For you created all things. And why? And by your will, they existed and were created. So why were things created? Because God wanted them created. 
Now, that may not mean much to you. It may seem kind of like a Captain Obvious sort of statement. But to say that all things, listen carefully, exist by God's will means that there are no accidents, only designs. The God has so orchestrated all of his creation so that things exist because God takes particular pleasure in them. And that he derives glory and he derives worship from their creation and also from their existence. All of the great truths of the Christian religion, all of them, start at this point. What point are you talking about, Mark? It's this point. The, 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 the point of everything, the central focus of all of life is the glory of God. Everything. Paul says it like this. This was actually our benediction last week. Paul says, from him and through him and to him are all things. That all things are from him means that, that everything that ever was, that ever will be, originates with God. That to say that all things are through him means that he's not only the one that conceives of or plans all things, but he is the one and the only one who exerts the power necessary to bring them to pass. To say that all things are to him, however, means that every atom of the created world, every unthing, unseen thing that exists in the spirit world, all of those things exist for God's purpose. And ultimately serve to bring him glory. But the Genesis creation of account, the the Genesis account of creation rather, reveals something more, something wonderful about the self-revealing, self-glorifying God that we should not miss. It's wonderful. You are probably, again, familiar with this passage. But if you look in the very first chapter again, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image and after our likeness, and watch, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. You have, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, raise your hand if before this sermon you were familiar with those words. But what I want to know is, have you ever thought about what you're seeing take place, the transaction that you're seeing happen there. This creative God, the rightful deed holder of everything that he has created, has also so orchestrated life that he will receive glory from it all. And and, and that God takes the entire earth and he hands it over as a gift for people like you and I, for mankind, humankind, to subdue and to manage. Now you let that sink in for a second. The God who is powerful enough and creative enough to create such a diversity of life and creation that we're still, you know, thousands of years later discovering new stuff all the time, that that God 
handed over the keys to the entire creation. Think about that. What does that say about God? See, in the lofty position of being image bearers of God, these two brand spanking new creations, Adam and Eve, are given the privilege and the charge to take dominion over what God has created. And this speaks of God bestowing rulership. God was the ruler. But now in this incredible act, he now bestows rulership on the human race. And though they serve under God's authority on this planet, they are in charge. And this high estate, now think about this. This is huge, guys. This high estate was not granted to the, to the beasts, any of the beasts. That he did not make turtles or dolphins or giraffes or amoebas the, the, the rulers of the planet. He gave one of his creation this, this thing. But it's also, you might think, well, of course, you know, we're the smartest, whatever. But he also did not give this role to any angels. He gave it to people like you and me. Now, I don't know if that terrifies you, but it gives me a little pause to think about. You can't even barely fathom a more impressive gift to be granted to the entire world than to be granted rather the entire world by its creator. So we see that the God who created everything for his pleasure and for his glory cannot help but to give it away generously. It's amazing. It's incredible. I've told some of you I have a, I have a vinyl record collection. It's probably my favorite thing that I own. And I don't want anybody touching that. I don't want anybody flipping through it randomly and taking things out of their, their sleeves and looking at them and scratching them and all that stuff. And God takes everything and hands it over. Think about it. He gives it away. He can't help but give it away generously and gives it away generously to the least deserving. Think about, you may have never thought about Adam being least deserving, but think about that. Think about how unqualified Adam was for this job. He had just barely begun breathing. And God hands over the planet. I mean, it's like, you know, handing over the keys to the brand new Porsche to your toddler child. He gives him the whole planet, barely started breathing. God hands him the keys to the entire planet. And and more than that, he didn't just give him the planet, he, he installs him as God's rightful king of creation. If Adam and Eve, what does that tell us? If they could be expected to do anything, either great or small, with this gift that they had been given. Think about it, they're completely unqualified, completely ignorant. They have no knowledge necessary to do what they've been given. So if they're going to do anything great or small with this gift, they would have to live in constant dependence upon God who had given it to them. They would have to. They'd have to listen for his voice and obey his commandments and and walk in the way that he'd given them because they had no experience and they knew absolutely nothing. If God said, go feed the frogs, Adam would say, cool. What's a frog? 
I mean, they had nothing. He had nothing. He brought nothing to the table. And yet it was God's great pleasure to give the earth. He wasn't anxious or nervous at all as he blessed this couple and commanded them to subdue this wild planet. He even ordered them to be fruitful and to multiply so that others would soon share in the joy and the responsibility of both ownership and stewardship. If you look through the Bible... If you read through the Bible this week, one thing that you're going to notice is that it reveals God as giving generously all the time. God is always a generous God. We read it in James this morning. He said, do not be deceived, my brothers, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James says that we serve a God who is both generous and dependable. He begins by saying, do not be deceived. Now, why does he start that way? Well, if you read the previous verses, you'll find out that he'd been telling his readers that God was not the author of temptation, that the temptations they may at times experience do not find their origin in God. And he follows that by explaining how sin and temptation work and how they originate in the heart of the one that's tempted. Now, he he changes gears a little bit and he shows them what does come from the heart of God. Every good gift and every perfect gift. All God does, you should hear this, is for his glory. That's undisputed. What God does is for his glory. But there's, a, there's a, a, a wonderful mystery at work here that what God does for his glory is always for your benefit. I want you to think about that. Sometimes people hear the doctrine that God does things, he's self-glorifying, he does things for his glory, and people think, well, is God just full of himself? Yes. Yes, but not in an arrogant way like you and I think. He's full of himself because there's nothing more glorious to be full of. And what he wants to do is not withhold himself from you and be and, and, con, and you know and, and treat you in some kind of degrading, condescending way. He wants to condescend to you. The Bible says in, in Psalms eighteen to make you great. He wants to bring you into the fullness of himself. There's nothing greater that God can focus on. Nothing, nothing at all. All God does for His own glory is for our benefit. And, and James says here, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God. So if it's good, or if it results in good, it is from God. If it results ultimately, in the end, in destruction, in despair, in greater depravity, then it's from Satan or it's from other sinful people. And sometimes, this is where it gets tricky, sometimes we can't immediately identify we can't immediately recognize the source or the value of the hard things that we have to walk through why because god in his goodness uses even those things to bring about goodness and good things for us and glory to his own name anybody ever experienced that anybody ever gone through a terribly hard season of your life that ultimately turned out to be one of the greatest blessings that you ever experienced You will. You will if you're following Jesus. In the end, God's people, for God's people, everything will prove to be glorious. Now that's the kind of promise that can carry you through some really tough times. 
It's the kind of promise that will really, really enable you to stand when everything is falling around you. That God promises that in the end, it will all prove glorious. This is what Romans 8, 28 means. Another familiar scripture. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things, everybody say all things, all things work together for what? For good. For those that are called according to his purpose. That called according to his purpose is not speaking of a particular task. Well, this guy preaches, so he's called according to his purpose. And this, this person is a mother, so she's called according to his purpose. And when it says called according to his purpose, it's saying called into salvation according to his purpose. So what it's saying is, if your trust is in the Lord God Almighty, through Jesus Christ, all things will work out according to, to God's purposes for good for you. That, could, that should just make all kinds of weight and stress and anxiety just roll right off of you. Because it's a promise. James also calls God, you might have noticed this, the father of lights. Some of your translations that you're reading this morning might say heavenly lights. And this is a reference, just like it sounds like, to the sun and the moon and the stars. James is saying, I want you to catch this, that the heavenly bodies are evidence of God's generosity. How so? Well, first of all, they symbolize the provision of warm days and cool nights and annual seasons, the change of seasons. But they also serve to remind us that God is over and above his creation. He's not a part of this creation. He's over it. He's superior to it. He observes it. He looks down upon it, the Bible says. As creator, he is the father or the originator of those lights. He's the one who spoke and commanded and they were there. Those celestial bodies came into being because God spoke them into existence. And so how does this help us to know that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights? Because if God can speak the Son into existence, is there anything He can't do for you? Is there a single thing that the God who calls the stars out every night by name, as Scripture says, can't do for you? Every good gift and every perfect gift. As Creator, though and not part of his creation, he doesn't change like the sky and the weather. He's he's above the lights. He's the originator of the lights. Light with God doesn't change to darkness. John said, in him there is no darkness at all. James describes his constancy. He says, with God there's no variation or shadow due to change. He never turns. He never changes. He never varies. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he never casts a shadow. God, for our purposes this morning, can be understood that he is always generous. If God never changes, if God is always generous, that means that the same world-gifting God we read about in Genesis is no less generous with his people today. Now, I don't want you to answer this, but just examine your own heart. Do you, looking back on this last week, 
the thoughts you had, the things you said, the things you talked to your wife or your husband about, the things that you got, uh, you know, bent out of shape with your boss about. Do you, as a believer, recognize for your life right now that God is just as generous with you as he was with Adam and Eve? Don't answer, don't nod, don't nothing. I want you to think about that for yourself. Have we, in some way, instead of, rejoicing in God's generosity, have we thrown an accusation at him saying, God, why haven't you just fill in the blank? But I'm telling you, if there's no shadow due to change in God, then you can rest assured based on the promises of God that he's just as generous today as he's ever been because he doesn't change. In Genesis, we read of a God who gave his vice regents a place to live and food to eat, even when they failed miserably in their job. Remember Genesis chapter 3? God provided a promise right in the middle of their despair. He said, I'm still going to provide for you. And he even gave them clothing so he wouldn't send them out naked into a hostile and violent world. And it's interesting, if you go all the way to the Gospels, to to Matthew's Gospel, Jesus comforted his own disciples by telling them that our Father is still aware that we have real-world temporal needs. I'm assuming that all of you need shelter. I'm assuming that most of you like to eat. Our men's breakfast yesterday indicated that strongly. I'm assuming that as winter is coming on, all of you will appreciate clothing. Matthew 6.31, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, Therefore, do not be anxious. Now some of us, myself included, would really, really benefit if I could only master that one single verse right there. Anybody else? Don't be anxious. Jesus makes it sound so simple, doesn't he? He says, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, in other words, the people who are not God's people. The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Jesus says it's the task of people who don't know God, who aren't personally acquainted with him, to worry and fret over their next meal, over the roof over their head, and warm clothing to wear. But those who know the living God have no need to worry. He had just told them that God puts clothing, glorious clothing on flowers and makes sure that the birds never miss a meal. And he says, you're worth much more than birds or flowers. He's aware of our needs, even before we ask him to provide. Now that doesn't mean that we don't ask him for those things, or that we don't thank Him when He provides them, though, to, ask, to both ask God for provision and to thank Him for it when He delivers demonstrates that we depend on Him for everything in life. Jesus instructed us to pray like this, Give us this day our daily bread. How often do we pray that? He said it right there in the verse. How often do we pray that? Daily. We pray for bread daily. And what this is, this isn't because we're going to starve to death if we don't ask. God's too good for that. It's an acknowledgement that we have nothing without Him. That He's our source. That we're dependent on Him. That our very life flows from Him. I have been asking God 
for some time to make me more aware of his provision and therefore more grateful when he provides. Why do I do this? Because like most of you, I think of something as basic as my food as being provided by Walmart or United or Sprouts. I think that's who provides for me. And so I take the money that I've earned from my job and I go there and I buy things. And and in my mind, God is never a part of the transaction. Anybody say, oops? See, decades ago, it was probably easier for families to cry out to God to provide and to thank him when he did because most of them grew, raised, or hunted for their own food. So think about this. So without the provision of rain... Without the provision of game, somebody's going to starve. And so it made it easier to say, hey, God, we need you to provide something here. Not for us. We hop in our air-conditioned cars, drive 15 minutes, go to the store, fill up on one. Now it's even better because they'll either deliver it to your house or bring it right out to your car. We don't have to do anything. But even what I want you to understand, though, in this message is that even though we have supermarkets... We are no less dependent on God's provision for every bite of food that we enjoy. Now, that that should have got a response. I don't want to milk you here this morning. But what I just said was that even though we have supermarkets and a a supply chain and we have guys like Chris that make sure that our, our stores are all stocked, even though we have that, not one single one of us in this room is any less dependent on, on God for every bite of food we, we have than a 17th century farmer. Not one bit, not a single iota less are we dependent on God. We're dependent upon Him for every dollar that we have to provide for our families. What if God were to test your faith, your, your confidence in His provision and your thankfulness for what He provides by just removing your job tomorrow? What would that do for your prayer life? Come on. He wants us to know how much we need Him. And so I would love for God's people, myself included, my family included, to move from saying the blessing, in air quotes, saying the blessing as some kind of pre-meal religious ceremony or ritual to truly thanking God from our hearts for what He's provided. And it's not just about food, guys. Listen, we should daily thank God for our jobs, our friends, our church, the loving companionship of our spouse, our freedom, the protection that God grants to our children, and the wisdom He bestows in tough situations. There are thousands of opportunities every day to give God thanks. Paul said this, he said in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he said, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Sometimes we, you know, we'll say, well, I wonder if it's God's will for me to buy this house or car or to, or to date this person or whatever, all kinds of things. And God certainly has an opinion on those. But we don't have to really struggle to see the will of God when it's written right there in black and white for us. The will of God is that you and I, as followers of Christ, would live lives of constant thankfulness in all situations, in all circumstances. That's what God wants. 
That's the will of God. We give thanks for everything because either everything came from God or he is working through everything for our good. We give thanks in good times when provision is abundant. And we give thanks in bad times because those times are hard as a way for us to genuinely acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we rejoice because he is absolutely in control. He says not even a sparrow falls to the ground without the Father seeing it. And you think you're going to go hungry without him seeing it? No way. Not going to happen. People neglect true thankfulness because they give themselves too much credit for providing for themselves. We boast of being hard workers and great money managers and thrifty shoppers and a self-made man or a self-made woman or a go-getter or a self-starter. And all of these things can certainly be noble or, or important. Because it certainly beats being lazy, irresponsible, unmotivated, or apathetic, right? I mean, we all agree on that. But Colossians 1.29 says this, and, and sometimes we forget this, even in our hardest working moments, our most noble, hardworking moments. Colossians 1.29, uh, Paul is describing his own work, and he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. It's okay to work hard. As long as you realize that even the strength that you have for your labor, even that is a gift from God. And that you turn in thankfulness to God saying, God, thank you that I have a healthy body that can go out and earn a living for my family. But we're also to remember that no matter what the gifts and the talents and the abilities we have, there are some things we can never do for ourselves that we're completely helpless. And this is where we see God's most important provision of all. Romans 5, 7 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says, that before Jesus found us, we were weak, we were still sinners. To say we're weak means that we lacked any power of our own to remedy our situation. There's no one here or, or that ever existed that was or is good enough or could be good enough to, to, to get God's attention, to impress God. To say that we were sinners juxtaposes us against God's holy nature. And this is a problem for us. It's a big problem for us. Why? Because God cannot ever tolerate or overlook sin. So we're doomed because we can't help but sinning and God can't tolerate or overlook sin. We're doomed to be separated from Him forever. It's so bad. Our situation, our situation is so dire that the scriptures say this in Ephesians. It says that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Now think about it. Be honest with yourself. There's no one in the world more helpless than a dead man. Dead man doesn't do anything. He just lays there. But the miracle is that this compassionate, planet-gifting God saw us in that state and loved us. 
That's the amazing thing. That's the miracle. That's the thing that ought to blow your mind that God saw us when we were in that, in that weak and sinful state and loved us. He, he couldn't simply ignore our debt and put aside his holy wrath because that would be to act contrary to his holy nature. And so it, it would, it, it would, if he did that, if he just kind of ignored our sin and, and, and acted contrary to our holy nature, it would cause him to be less than a perfectly holy God, something that God will never, ever do. So in love, he came up with a glorious solution. God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ the Son, the second person of the Trinity, would bear both the penalty and the punishment for the sins of those whom he would call to himself. And those sins would be punished in his own body on the cross. And Romans says that this is how God... I love this passage in in chapter 3. It says, this is how God remained perfectly just. He didn't overlook sin. He punished it, but would also become the justifier of those uh, whom he would call to himself. So God remained just. He judged sin in the body of Jesus Christ, but he also became the justifier of you and I who would trust in Jesus. And this meant... Uh, This is exactly what he meant by the most famous verse in all scripture. You could say it without my help, but it's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. I think we're seeing evidence of a generous God all over again, aren't we? See that? See how generous God is? You were helpless, you were weak, you were sinners, you were dead. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And just like in the garden, with those newly formed creatures, just begun breathing, God loved, and therefore he gave. People often come to me, almost weekly, with some complaint about God's handling of a temporary situation in their lives. And they'll end up saying something like, I wish God would just show me he loves me, or I wish that God would just give me this or that. And I just want to tell you this morning, as long as a bloody cross stands on Calvary's hill, you need no more evidence that God loves you. God has proven he loves you beyond any shadow of a reasonable doubt. As long as we sing and we preach of the death of the King of Heaven, we have no right to demand a greater gift from God because there is no greater gift from God. And yet Scripture teaches that that bloody cross is also proof that He will wonderfully provide for everything beneficial that we need. This is what Katie read this morning. At Romans 8.32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for his all, watch this, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's awesome. What did you just read there? The Bible promises for those who trust in Christ, uh, the, 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 or the, the, Bible, the, the, the promises of the Bible, I should say it like that, for those who trust in, in Christ include shelter and food and clothing. And, and that's so crazy because that's where most of us spend all of our time worrying. Temporal things, things that will come and go. 
But it also promises us much greater treasures as all, as a of all of that, is a guaranteed promise. It promises us just things like the flawless word. It promises us power and love and soundness of mind. It promises us wisdom and peace and self-control and energy and insight. All of that brought to us by the greatest gift of all, the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, and it's been given as a gift freely. You didn't earn him. It's been given as a gift freely to all of those who believe in Christ's name. To live inside them as God himself personally walking with you every day. The people in the Old Testament trembled before the, 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 the place where God's presence dwelled. Because, the, because of their unholiness, it meant certain death if anybody were to venture in there. And God has so cleansed us by the blood of Jesus that now he doesn't even invite us to where he is. He comes to where we are and dwells right inside this temple. The Bible says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if we really understood that, we would never, ever, ever on the most minor level ever again question the generosity of God. Because he has redeemed you so that he could pour himself into you. What a gift. What a gift. Peter sums all this up like this. He says in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things. Everybody say all things again. He's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence and by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. So what he's saying is, his, his divine power has granted you everything you need for life, food, shelter, clothing, job, all those things, and godliness, so that you can grow in grace and learn to know Jesus more. And, and, and the end result of that is this bestowing upon us great and precious promises. He did that by his divine power. But it says because of those that act, now we will actually become partakers of his divine nature. Pretty impressive promise. How many of you are seeing God as a generous God? Incredibly generous. All things. Come to us through great and precious promises. And the Bible says, God is not a man that he should lie. So if he's given you a promise, you can take it to the bank. How can anyone read scriptures or look to Christ and deny that God is a gracious and generous God? Yet though he has redeemed us, if we're honest, and listen, I'm not pointing any fingers. The old saying about pointing one out and having ten point back at you is absolutely true in this case. Because though he's redeemed us, we're way too often ungrateful. We're stingy. We're selfish. And we completely lack in compassion. And so, let's just, if you're hearing what I'm saying this morning, Let's not wait another second. Let's not let another day pass before we repent. 
before we change course, before we turn around and ask God to cause us to reflect both his goodness and his generosity and reflect it to everyone around us. And may we do that as an act of eternal worship and gratitude to the holy God who has spared no expense to rescue us and to cause us to be blessed. Would you stand with me? I have never wanted to be a great orator. What do I mean by that? I'm saying that if there is something in your heart that needs to be done, there's work that the Holy Spirit wants to do to transform you into the image of Christ, and you can walk out of here not responding to what the Holy Spirit is saying and say, yeah, that was a good message. I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less if you curse the message if you're not going to be changed by the message. And so what I want to do is I want to give you the opportunity right now to just bow your heads. Everybody bow your heads. And I, I used some words there earlier, and I want you to look at your own life. And realize that you will one day stand before a holy God. And sometimes we use that, or I hope I never do, but sometimes churches use that as a fear tactic. So what I want to tell you is now, you will stand before a holy God. and He will, if, if, if you don't repent, he will bring these things up. But what I want you to understand is not that you will stand before a holy God, but that you are right now standing before a holy God. Right this very second. So I'm just going to invite you as people who have been redeemed by a God who found you when you were sinful, weak, and dead, as people who are full of the Holy Spirit, if you've trusted in Christ, I want to ask you to look deeply into the darkest recesses of your own heart and begin to to ask the Holy Spirit who lives inside you to point out where you've been ungrateful. look at it. Don't try to deny it, justify it, make excuses for it. Just look at it. Where have you been ungrateful? Where have you been stingy? Where you're so connected to your stuff, you've just held it with a tight grip? Where have you been selfish either in your demands and your lifestyle and whatever, everything's been about you. Where have you done that? Where have you lacked in compassion? I want you to think about that. Let the Holy Spirit remind you of things. In fact, have a lot of courage and don't just try to catalog your life. Ask the Holy Spirit right now to remind you of where you found yourself ungrateful, stingy, selfish, lacking in compassion. Ask him to show you. And then ask yourself, if I claim to belong to and serve and give my life up to a God who, along with the death of his own precious son, has freely promised to give me all things, 
How can I justify ingratitude, stinginess, selfishness, and a lack of compassion? Just ask him. It's not about making you feel bad. It's about letting you get back in right alignment with God. Because man, when you're freed to reflect the generosity of God, it is awesome. It's awesome. And so just ask God where those things have infected your walk with God or your walk with other people. Now, for those of you who are very courageous, I just want to invite you to just pray a prayer of repentance. I'm going to pray, obviously, into the microphone, but I don't want you to care too much about what I'm saying. I want you to pray your own prayer of repentance for the ingratitude, the stinginess, the selfishness, and the lack of compassion. Just ask the Holy Spirit to make you reflect His character and His attributes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You reminded by Your Holy Spirit of our own weakness, our own lack, our own failure to reflect Your goodness and Your generosity. So God, we want to come to you right now and we want to ask you, Lord, to to change our hearts, Lord God. God, we invite you to uh, allow the Holy Spirit to bring real conviction to our hearts when we slip into patterns of ingratitude or stinginess or selfishness, when we deny compassion to others. Lord, there is nothing that you have withheld from us, from creation to forgiveness to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing that you've denied to us. And so we ask that you would make us the kind of people, God, who open the vaults of our hearts, of our souls, of our emotions, of our mind, and bestow lavishly in worship and thankfulness to you, Lord God, like you have to us, Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord God, to reflect the generosity of Almighty God. God, I pray that that as we do that, as we commit to a life of repentance, not just words of repentance, I pray that you would fill us with joy and amazing peace, incredible, uh, God, just power to overcome things that are difficult, Lord God. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for making us like Christ. Continue to work in us that we could be holy. Thank you, Jesus. And now that we've repented, I want you to just take a minute, and I want everybody to do this. It's going to, it may be awkward for some of you, and it's okay, because everyone's going to be doing it. What I want you to do is out loud, in, in, a, in a normal speaking voice, I want you to take a moment. It may sound like a cacophony in here, I understand that. But just for, in a normal speaking voice, I want you to verbalize an acknowledgement of God's provision in your life and to take a moment and just thank him for it. Can we do that together? Just begin to speak out. Just begin to tell him what you're thankful for and what he's done. I've given you plenty of a list this morning, so just use that or just let him remind you of things to give him thanks. Come on, let me hear you. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your provision. We thank you that you've never left us hungry or unsheltered or unclothed, Lord God. God, we thank you that, that you sent Jesus to die for us and to cleanse us from our sin and our wickedness and, and, our, and our filthiness. And Lord, you've given us 
a, a new life in Christ. You raised us from the dead. You've set us with him in heavenly places. Lord, you bestowed on us the Holy Spirit, who is a constant fountain of joy and peace and wisdom. So, Lord, for all of these provisions and for many others that we could never even begin to list before you, Lord, we give you thanks, we give you praise, we give you adoration because you are a holy God, a generous God. And without you, we could do nothing. We would have nothing. We would be completely empty-handed. But you have shown your goodness to us time and time again. Lord, I thank you for my wife. I thank you for my children. God, I thank you for my soon-to-be daughter-in-law, Lord. God, I thank you for the people, my friends here at church that you've surrounded me with that encourage me and, and, and pray for me and lift me up, Lord God. God, I thank you for all the times you've answered my prayers and all the times you've come through when it seemed like there was no way, Lord God. God, I thank you for your constant presence, your comfort, and your, and your life that comes from your, your, just the, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I thank you for all of this, Jesus. You are so good. God, help us to remember to live lives of thankfulness and gratitude before you, to always say thank you to you, to always and mean it, Lord God, to, to recognize our, our emptiness and our lack without you, Lord God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. We acknowledge you. We call you Lord. We call you Lord. You're the one who, who cares for us and shepherds us and loves us takes care of us and makes sure we and make sure we have everything we need, Lord God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. This morning would not be complete if we didn't do our our uh, weekly act of thankfulness, our weekly act of remembering the provision of the Lord. And so I want you to come and receive uh, these elements for communion and then just go back to your seat and we'll take them together. But if you would, just go ahead and come on and and uh, get your elements, and um, we'll take them together in just a moment when everybody gets theirs. One of the great reasons why we do this every week is because we want to acknowledge uh, and bring ever before us, you know, just as the words I'm about to read say when it says, do this in remembrance of me, um, the taste of this bread and the, and the, ta- the sip of this cup should cause us always to remember to rejoice, to be thankful for the greatest provision any of us ever received. The thing that makes us know, as I said earlier in my message, that God is a providing God and that he is always good. And all the church said, amen. Amen. So Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you, which is given for you, which is a gift of the generosity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Can we pray? Lord, thank you for your body. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're beautiful body was marred it was scarred it was torn to pieces it was bruised and blackened and bloodied lord you you were broken lord god so that we would not bear in our body the marks of our own sin but you made us holy you made us whole you made us clean through the through the breaking and the tearing of your own body 
And so, Lord, as we've given you thanks for many things this morning, we give you thanks for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so what I'd like to do right now is just like you did a moment, you don't have to take as long, but just as you did a few moments ago, would you just in your own words thank him for the blood of Jesus that we sang about? Nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash you clean. And for many of you, it has. And so would you just give him thanks for that? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your washing. Thank you for your cleansing. Thank you, Lord, that you take a dead sinner and make him a living saint, Lord God. Thank you, Jesus. You are so good. You are so worthy to be praised. We adore your name. Jesus' name. Let's take the cup. Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you would extend your hands into a receiving position, I just want to speak a benediction over you. This is the uh, what I always call the classic benediction from the Old Testament. I thought it was so appropriate for this morning's message because it says, The Lord bless you, and he has. The Lord keep you, and he has. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, and he has. And the Lord be gracious to you, and he has. And the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace, and he has, and he will. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.